Welcome to the Gather Houston podcast. We are a Christian community practicing the way of Jesus in all parts of life and for the good of all people. Thank you for joining us today. So uh, we are in the middle of a conversation right now about becoming a community of peacemakers. And peacemaking is kind of the next movement uh, of our community. Uh, We've spent a lot of time uh, in our community over the last couple of years going upward and experiencing the expansive and the inclusive love of God. We spent a lot of time and energy and thought going inward on this journey of healing. And now uh, it's time for us to step outward as peacemakers into our world. And so uh, we've been having this conversation about what it looks like to become a community of peacemakers. And today uh, I want to have a conversation about reclaiming evangelism as a community of peacemakers. Evangelism. Are you feeling uncomfortable? Evangelism. Let's get into it, okay? So evangelism is a churchy word, and for some of you, it's an uncomfortable word, and I understand that. Uh, In a lot of circles, it's kind of a bad word these days. Uh, If you don't know what it is, evangelism is defined as the spreading of the Christian message by public witness or by preaching. And uh, that can be good. It can be good, okay? So that, let's at least start there. It can be good, but, but evangelism has just gone, it's gone a little off the rails. Uh, it's gone off the rails in a lot of ways. And I think that's the reason why uh, we need to reclaim it uh, because it hasn't always gone well. I mean, even just our connotation, our emotional response to the idea of evangelism should tell you we probably have some work to do around it. And so before we talk about what it looks like to reclaim evangelism, I just thought I would share my own experience a little bit about um, what my experience with evangelism is and then what my honest questions are about the things I've done. As I look back at them, how do I feel about those things? Because uh, I have spent uh, hours and hours and hours and hours doing evangelism training, and then I have done a lot of evangelism. I have done evangelism with tracks. I have done evangelism with scripts. I have done evangelism with an evangel cube. Have you ever heard of an evangel cube? It's kind of like a Rubik's cube, except when you solve it, you learn you're going to hell. It's a great, it's a super fun game. Uh, I've done evangelism at school. I've done evangelism at parks. I've done evangelism on the street. I've done evangelism at the mall. Uh, Church was really fun for me growing up. And uh, so I've done a lot of evangelism, and uh, for the most part, to be totally honest, when I was doing all of that on the street and at the park and in the mall, I felt super good about myself. Now, I was having just terrible conversations, and we would say, well, one uncomfortable conversation to sow a seed in someone's life is totally worth it. Those are the kinds of things we would say. I was, I was having terrible conversations. It, wa- it wasn't uh, like fun, but I felt really good about it. But now, looking back with a little bit of distance, a little bit more experience, a little bit more education, I have these questions about what I was doing. So I have four questions. The first uh, is this, uh, why was I using sales techniques? Why was I using sales techniques? I was creating a problem that people didn't know they had that only I or only God or only my church could solve. I was creating a problem that only I had the solution to. It's called solution selling. I was using a real sales technique. Why, why did I get trained in sales techniques? And do the ends really justify the means? I mean, I know 
that we always said that if one person came to faith, then it was worth all of it. But it kind of just felt like we were harming people into heaven. And, and was all that just spiritual gaslighting? I mean, just best case scenario, we were leaving people questioning their own judgment and really confused. So just questioning their own ability to make good decisions, questioning their own judgment, and just super confused. That was kind of our best case scenario. Was all that just spiritual gaslighting? And maybe most importantly, did I ever actually share any good news? I mean, evangelism, it comes from this word, uh, this Greek word evangelion. It's a, it's a word that means good news. Did I ever share any good news? I mean, do, does fear actually save people from hell or does it just create more hell for people? And listen, I uh, unfortunately don't have good answers to any of those questions, uh, but I wanted you to know, I just wanted you to have my context about how I'm feeling about this conversation because as I look back on my experiences, um, I don't think of them as uh, very healthy or helpful. And so I want you to know today that this conversation in, in a lot of ways is an open critique of what all of that was and what I know many of you have experienced. It's an open critique of that. And um, I think we have a lot of work to do and I don't have a full answer to what, we're, uh, what it's supposed to look like, but I, but I have kind of a hope for us, if nothing else. So my, my hope as a community of peacemakers who want to reclaim evangelism, my hope is that we would stop doing evangelism. My hope is that we would stop doing evangelism and that we would start being evangelism, that we would stop doing and we would start being. Our, our passage is a kind of classic evangelism passage from Matthew chapter four. This is what it says, verses 18 through 23. It says, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, son of Zebedee and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets. Jesus called to them and immediately they left the boat and, and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. All right, so Jesus is beginning his public ministry here as a rabbi. And uh, the, the passage kind of starts uh, with uh, Jesus calling his disciples and saying, come follow me. So this practice of a rabbi calling disciples and even the phrase, the actual phrase, come follow me, it's all very common. This is what rabbis did. They started their ministry, they chose disciples, and to the disciples, they looked at them and they said, come follow me. So it, it wasn't um, uh, odd for Jesus to be calling disciples or for even using this specific phrase, but it was very odd who Jesus was calling to be his disciples, Right? That's the abnormal part of the story is who he calls. Because these uh, fishermen aren't the, aren't the normal uh, for who gets called to be a disciple, but uh, they wanted to be disciples. They wanted to be disciples of a rabbi because just about every young Jewish boy in this context in first uh, century Israel wanted to be a, a disciple to a rabbi and ultimately become a rabbi himself. Every, every child went to rabbinic school. That's why uh, we get Jesus in the temple learning. That's what all the boys were doing. 
And so um, these boys, starting at the age of six, they would devote all of their life and time to learning the Torah so that they could ultimately become a disciple of a rabbi. That was all of their goals. The best of the best got to become a disciple. That was the goal if you were a young Jewish boy. So at the age of six, um, they would start to memorize the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And the goal would be that by the age of 10, you would have the entire thing memorized. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You would have all of that memorized. Not like I got the story down memorized. And if you had it totally memorized by the age of 10, if you were the best of the best, you got to move up in the class. And from ages 10 to 14, you would take that time to learn all the rest of the Hebrew Bible. And then when you were 14, a local rabbi would come and every rabbi had their yoke and they would be looking for a group of disciples to carry on their yoke, their unique set of teachings. And because these young boys, these 14-year-olds, were supposed to have everything memorized, the rabbis would quiz these uh, young boys on how well they knew the scriptures. And they would quiz them in this really interesting way. They would just look at a young boy and say something like, um, those who are walking in darkness have seen a great light. It's a verse from Isaiah. And the young boy was supposed to know that verse, of course, But instead of asking them to maybe finish that or tell them where it was from, the rabbi would speak that out loud and then say, could you tell me the verse that's five verses after that? So not only did you have to know that one, know where it was from, you had to know where it fit in the passage and what came a certain number of lines after that. I mean, you had to really, really have it memorized. So if you were 14 and you had it all down perfectly, then maybe a rabbi would look at you in the eye and say, you've put in all this work. Now come, follow me. And if you uh, got quizzed by a rabbi and it didn't go well, what the rabbi would say was go and be with your family and ply the family trade. Go uh, do your family business. That's why uh, James and John here with their dad, Zebedee, they're a family of fishermen. So these guys, uh, James, John, Andrew, and Peter, they had obviously flunked out of rabbinic school. So a rab- no rabbi had said, come follow me. They were plying their family trade. They had failed at their communal dream, at their really their family dream. They weren't good enough. And so when Jesus comes out to them, this rabbi comes out and says, hey, come follow me, of course they do. Right? Of course they leave everything because that is ultimately what they wanted. It was their communal dream. It was their family dream that a rabbi would speak these words to them, that a rabbi would tell them that they're good, that they're good enough, right? And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's speaking to their identity, to their being. He's telling them who they are, right? He's inviting them into this new identity, a good news identity, an evangelism identity. Jesus is saying to them, you are good. You are plenty good enough. You are not a failure, That is good news. And it's not about doing, it's about being. And there's these two sets of disciples here. And in between, we get this phrase from Jesus. And he says, uh, come follow me and I will send you out to fish for people. Some translations say, uh, I will make you fishers of men. I think I had this on t-shirt at some point. Uh, And this, uh, this phrase has been used as kind of an evangelism uh, framework or strategy Uh, It's instruction. You know, we should fish for men. 
But um, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. So I, I think what, what Jesus is doing is I think what Jesus is doing is that this is an invitation uh, as a, for a new identity. So these guys, being a fisherman was their, their whole identity. They were plying their family trade. They were fishermen. And I don't think that fishing is the way we should think about sharing the way of Jesus. I think what Jesus is saying here when he says, come and come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, that it's a contextualized metaphor for embracing a new identity. It's a contextualized metaphor for embracing a new identity. If Peter, Andrew, James, and John would have been carpenters, if that would have been their family trade, that was the family trade of Jesus. If that would have been the family trade Instead of fishing, Jesus wouldn't have said, come and I'll make you fishers of men. Maybe Jesus would have said, come and help me build a new humanity, which makes me think, man, I really wish they would have been carpenters instead of fishermen. I think we probably would all think about this a little differently. Right? When he says, I'll make you fishers of men, it's because they're fishermen. He's inviting them into this new identity. It's a contextualized metaphor for embracing a new identity, right? Biblical evangelism is not the original multi-level marketing platform, right? Evangelism is not a recruitment strategy. It's a way of life. And the reason we know that is because this word gets used. Evangelion gets used at the end of this passage. It says Jesus went out proclaiming the good news, proclaiming evangelion. So if we want to know What's evangelism supposed to be? If it's not a recruitment strategy, if being a fisher of men isn't what Jesus was doing, if that was just a contextualized metaphor for embracing a new identity, then what is the strategy here? Well, it says that Jesus left there and he went out and good newsed. So if you want to know what the strategy is, all you have to do is keep reading the Gospels. See what Jesus did. He was not fishing for people. What Jesus did is Jesus encouraged, Jesus healed, Jesus taught, Jesus opened his table and visited homes. He stood against oppression. He challenged religious systems. He empowered women. He lifted up the sinners. He honored the poor. He rebuked the self-righteous and the religious. And he declared that the kingdom of God was near and that the kingdom of God was for everyone. Jesus wasn't introducing a new recruitment strategy when he went out to proclaim evangelion, when he went out to do that evangelism. What he was doing was inviting people into a new identity, just like he did with Andrew, James, and John. That Jesus was going out and saying, this is your identity. You are good. He's calling all the way back to the Genesis narrative. When God creates humanity and he calls them good, This is the good news that God is near again, just like in the Genesis narrative, and he is calling us good. Jesus is influencing an identity. He's not instructing a new recruitment strategy. He's telling uh, telling these original disciples, Andrew, Peter, James, and John, that they are good enough, that they can follow good news, and that they can become good news. And he's telling us the same thing. He's inviting us into a new identity. He's honoring and encouraging and empowering. This isn't recruitment. 
So because I'm taking uh, a decent number of shots today at my, uh, <laughs> my religious heritage, I thought I would show some Southern Baptist love by using an alliteration, because I still like alliteration, thanks uh, First Baptist. But uh, So here, here's what I want you to know, that becoming evangelism, embracing this identity of being more than doing, can't be rooted in pride, punishment, or toxic positivity. Pride, punishment, positivity. You like that? And I think these are kind of the attitudes to avoid. These are the, the traps, the pitfalls, because so much of our evangelism has been rooted in these ideas. So much of our evangelism has started from a place of pride, where we say we have the secret knowledge. And uh, you probably won't understand it, but eventually, if you listen to me long enough, and then you say this special prayer, then you'll get it. Or a lot of our evangelism starts from this place of pride. Or it starts, uh, it's rooted in an idea of punishment. So this is, this is really where uh, I was, what I was feeling most of the time. I was feeling like uh, if I didn't share this script, that I would be punished. And more importantly, I thought my friend, if I didn't share it with them, I thought my friends or these people in my community, um, that they would be punished forever if I didn't share it with them. I, I was uh, holding the responsibility of eternal punishment for other people as like a 12-year-old. Like punishment was really where I was rooting my idea of evangelism. And, and then being evangelism, being a good news person, it isn't about uh, being overly positive. It's not about being uh, about embracing kind of toxic positivity. When I say these things out, out loud, that we're supposed to become evangelism, that we're good news people, the first thing that goes off in my mind is uh, everything isn't good. How do we be a good news people when everything isn't good? Everything's not okay, right? I, I'm not telling you that you should ignore all the bad in the world. I don't think you need to bypass or you need to downplay I don't, I don't think that being a, a good news person means pretending that everything is always good, okay? I think that being a good news person means having hope that is oriented in justice. And it's not, not blind and bypassing, but it's this hope that, that believes that things can and will be okay. And, it, and it's this orientation in justice that says, I am willing to fight for things to be okay, for be restored, to be just in our world. As we become evangelism, as we embrace this identity that's more being than doing, I think uh, our motivation, our, our, our starting place can never be pride, can never be punishment, and it shouldn't be toxic positivity. Right, listen, Jesus called those who needed good news to follow good news and ultimately become good news. The invitation isn't to learn a script. It isn't to start an argument. It isn't to feel more right than other people. The invitation today is to embrace an identity as a good news person, more being than doing. That's what evangelism is about. So for you, are you a good news person? Right? Being evangelism starts with this identity. It's why the story of, of Jesus that's why this story in Matthew starts with Jesus calling these guys who thought that they were failures. And he says, hey, you, you are good. You are plenty good enough to be my disciple. And do you believe your identity starts with good? Good. That God calls you good. 
We say this gospel proclamation. Gospel is supposed to be good news. We say this gospel proclamation at the end of our liturgy every week, and it starts with, I was created by God, and he calls me good. Now, do you believe that you are a good news person, that that's your identity, that you are good, that you are plenty good enough? And of pride, punishment, and positivity, which of those traps do you most often fall into? All right, so for me, it was punishment. I was afraid to be punished myself, and I wanted to keep other people out of punishment. I had a real punishment and kind of guilt uh, situation when it came to being, doing evangelism. For you, what, what kind of pitfall do you most often find yourself in? Maybe it's pride. That's easy for you to think you have the right answer and no one else really gets it. Maybe it's pride for you. Or maybe you're the kind of person uh, that, that it, uh, it's easy for you to kind of bypass or downplay when things uh, aren't going well. Sometimes our toxic positivity or just positivity in general is rooted in our privilege because we don't actually see all the bad things that are happening in our world. They feel far away. And so it's easy for us to bypass or downplay. Maybe, maybe it's a positivity that's kind of rooted in privilege. And then how can you start being evangelism, right? About embracing this identity, more being than doing. You don't need a script. You don't have to have everything uh, down, right? You don't have to have the stuff memorized. The first disciples, they clearly did not pass the original tests. There, There weren't tests. These guys were the failures. And Jesus says, come, follow me. You don't have to have the test, right? You don't have to have the script. You don't have any of that. What does it look like for you to just be good news in your being, to embrace this identity and be evangelism. Or may, maybe it would just uh, be following the Jesus way. You could read the rest of the gospel and say, well, what did Jesus do? It seems like he honored the poor and empowered women. But he encouraged and he lifted up and he taught. And he cared and he loved out of humility. He was self-sacrificing. You could just follow the Jesus way. That's how you be evangelism. Maybe just be reminded that there's no guilt that there's no guilt associated with this word, with the word evangelism. No guilt and no pride. No guilt, no pride. Maybe that's all you need to say to yourself this week. No guilt, no pride, no punishment. Right? God is near and the kingdom is for everyone. Maybe that should be your prayer this week as you start to be evangelism. There's no guilt, no punishment. God is near and the kingdom is for everyone. Jesus is reminding us today of who we are and who we are made to be. We are good news people. The comedian Pete Holmes tells a story about a life-changing moment for him. Uh, he was in high school Spanish class, and uh, like a lot of people in uh, high school Spanish classes, he was totally checked out. He spent the entire time uh, doodling and drawing during class, so head down drawing the entire class. And the bell rang, and he was trying to get out as fast as possible. And he hit the door, and the Spanish teacher said, Mr. Holmes, can I have a minute with you? Which is bad news, right? Not good news. So he slowly uh, walks over to her desk, and she lets everybody else file out of the classroom, which, again, is bad news. And he pauses and waits for it. And she says, Pete, you are an amazing artist. You are creative and you are so gifted. I hope you have a really great day. And it changed his life because she could have 
She could have reprimanded negative behavior, but instead she called out the goodness of his identity, of who he was. And for me, and my guess is true for, for you, my, for me, my life has not been impacted very much by um, any Jesus script. It's not been changed by a picket sign, and definitely not by an Evangel cube. But there are some people who have been good news in my life. And they didn't hand me a tract. They didn't argue with me or try to convince me of anything. They loved me. They encouraged me. They cared for me. They showed up for me. They were quiet peacemakers, not loud evangelists. This is how we reclaim evangelism. We look out at God's magnificent creation and we call it good. We look each other, our neighbors, our friends, our family, we look each other in the eye and we call each other good. And we go stand in front of the mirror and we see God's magnificent creation and we call it good. This is our identity. This is the truest identity of our world. It is good. We are good news people. And so gather, this is my prayer for us today. Embrace your identity as a good news person. You are good. God says it and so do I. So with no hint of pride, no threat of punishment, no need for toxic positivity, go and declare the goodness of our world. Follow good news and become good news. May it be so. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in Gather, check out our website at gatherhouston.org or visit us on Sunday at 10 a.m.